Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hey everyone, welcome along to another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is Friday, April 21st, 2023. We are uh, doing things a little bit earlier. We're trying to fiddle around with the Wednesday uh, programming and the Monday programming and the Tuesday programming this week. So we figured we would also fiddle around with the Friday programming and see what works. So if you like the earlier show as you head into the weekend, let me know in the comment section. And if you don't, uh, also let me know in the comment section. But typically people do not like uh, to hold back on their negative comments. So it's good to, you know, overwhelm them with a bit of positive I want to talk this week because it is a Friday and we like to go out with a bit of the lighter side of the news uh, with a discussion about this heist in, <laughs> in in Toronto at Pearson Airport, a $20 million heist. Now, when I first heard this, I assumed someone had just like made off with a grocery cart because if you've been to a, a grocery store lately, I think like that's the price of basically four eggs and a pot roast is uh, gets you to the 20 million pretty quickly. But it is not groceries. It is not food products. It is uh, gold and other valuables. If you were an Austin Powers fan, $20 million that they took away uh, and without a trace of evidence and no witnesses so far and very remarkably similar to a heist at the Malton Airport uh, in Toronto like 60, 60 some odd years ago which to this day has never been solved. Maybe it is uh, an old-timer trying to relive lost glory, and uh, the guy that did the first heist, it, or the woman, you never know. You never want to be presumptuous, but I'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show. I also want to just talk about this report that was done by the Public Health Agency of Canada uh, that was submitted to Dr. Teresa Tam. Now, she did not, it has been reported in some places, write this report. She was the recipient of the report and the target audience of the report, but it has also cited her language and cited her policy objectives on a number of fronts. And if you go to the Government of Canada website, the report is called What We Heard. Perspectives on Climate Change and Public Health in Canada. It was prepared by uh, a number of researchers, submitted to PHAC, submitted to Dr. Teresa Tam, uh, the woman who became a household name throughout the COVID pandemic as being the so-called top doctor in this country. And Teresa Tam has now gotten this voluminous report in her hands that warns of climate change. Now, you may think, okay, what's the big deal? A day can't go by without some liberal cabinet minister talking about climate change. I was uh, at one point in, I think was I was, it was in Juneau, Alaska, so the, the capital of Alaska, and I spent a day there, and I went into this little coffee shop, and they had a, a community bulletin board, and I was just waiting for them to make whatever I had ordered, and I was looking up at the community bulletin board, and it was fascinating because Juneau, Alaska is not a large place. This is not a booming metropolis. It's got like 30, I just looked it up, 32,000 people live there. And you look up on the bulletin board, and the first one is, uh, you know, how to talk about climate change. And the second uh, poster is a lecture at the library from some climate change expert. And then the third poster is a uh, one advertising some climate art show that they're putting on. And you know, you go through like nine, 10 of these things. And then the one that I saw last, which I thought was a great closer, 
was why don't we ever talk about climate change a panel discussion and i was like well you should uh, let the first nine uh, seminar hosts uh, know that we don't talk about climate change because they never got the memo so all of that is to say we hear no shortage of this from the government climate change is the uh, thing that is basically the government's top vehicle for control now so i was very curious to see how they're now positioning this more and more as not a political issue not even an environmental issue but a public health issue. This calls climate change a public health emergency. It also expands into other public health emergencies that are related to climate, like settler colonialism and colonization in general and capitalism. Yes, they reference the fundamental problems of economic growth, capitalism, and colonization. These are now part of this public health crisis. And one quote here says, if we don't address capitalism, if we don't address colonialism, racism, the patriarchy, etc., we're going to tread water for a long time until we eventually drown. I can't see how much longer we can make believe that we're doing our job as public health practitioners with regard to climate change without addressing those fundamental systemic underpinnings of what got us here and what's continuing to lead us in the wrong directions. They talk about the core drivers of climate change as being unquestioningly capitalism and colonialism, as well as extraction. And then they have the audacity to say that there's also polarization that they are victims of. So uh, this report is what you'd expect from some first year, uh, you know, sociology and gender studies major at the wokest university imaginable to put forth in their essay. But here we have people with letters before their name and after their name who occupy a tremendously powerful position in society that are entertaining this activist garbage without actually really making the case. And when, when they talk about capitalism as being a driver of climate change, what they're saying is industry is a driver of climate change. When you make something, when you make a product, when you produce something, it comes with, they argue, an environmental cost. Now, what they are not saying is that the alternative to this is deindustrializing. How do we deindustrialize? Do we go back to, uh, you know, doing the Flintstones cars and just take the combustible engines out of your automobile and uh, drill out a section in, not drill, but saw out a section in the floor of the car and then just, you know, hope your uh, calves can get you from point A to point B, which uh, will not be that far away when you live in your 15-minute city. And the language in particular here, when they talk about emergency, is one we should be very, very concerned about because we've lived through a public health emergency, quote unquote. We know what governments do when they believe they are facing a public health emergency. And it means a completely divisive approach, wedges within society, a surrendering of civil liberties, all out of the ever cited abundance of caution, out of an abundance of caution. And we'll talk about this in a few moments with Mark Morano, who's been warning about this since before it was cool to, but we need to be very wary when we start seeing the same language that was used about one issue over the last three years transition without even a major segue to this other issue 
And now we're all supposed to expect that, yes, these are just two birds of a feather. Uh, the COVID situation is the same as the climate situation. And then at a certain point, they're going to be saying, well, now we've solved the climate. So now we need to go after capitalism. Uh, and capitalism is a public health emergency right now. Colonialism is a public health emergency. If you got something stuck in your tooth, that could be a public health emergency that requires a whole of government approach to deal with. So this stuff is not inconsequential. And if you followed the 2021 election campaign, you may have seen this story of Cheryl Gallant, who is a longtime conservative member of parliament in, I believe it's Renfrew Nipissing Pembroke is her riding. And I've met Cheryl a couple of times. I don't know her particularly well. Uh, but she had shared something relatively innocuous on social media in which she said, you know, there are some people that would love to see a climate lockdown. And she was just eviscerated by the media. Aaron O'Toole was basically denouncing her because the media was demanding that Aaron O'Toole denounce her. And her crime was saying that there could be a climate lockdown just like there was a COVID lockdown. Now, uh, Cheryl will never get apologies from people when she's proven right. And at a certain point, I think we have to accept that there are no shortage of people who would like to see this happen. And you needn't actually look further than the case before the courts in Canada on the constitutionality of the carbon tax. And just to give you constitutional uh, governance 101 here, there are in Canada, as a federalist country, separations of powers, which means there are certain powers that are reserved for the federal government, certain powers reserved for the provincial government. And every now and then you get an issue where it's not entirely clear which box it fits into. And this was the case of a carbon tax. So the provinces said, no, 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 this is a provincial responsibility. The federal government said, no, 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 it's a federal responsibility. And the reason why why the federal government argued was that it was an issue of national concern under this uh, doctrine of Canadian constitutional law called peace, order, and good government. I've bored you enough. I'll bring, bring it back to the political reality here. But what was interesting in that case is that some of the interveners, groups that were not the government, that were arguing in court with a position, like the David Suzuki Foundation, for example, like the Climate Nexus or whatever it's called, uh, they were all saying, no, not the Climate Nexus, that's John Robson's group. They're good. They're good folks. Um, it was uh, some group with, they all have like the same name. They've just rearranged the words. But uh, they were saying it's actually justified under emergency grounds. So they thought that because the federal government has the right to trample all over federalism, if there is a national emergency, sound familiar? They have the right to then do whatever they want to do, irrespective of the Constitution, on climate change. So this argument is not just coming from the fringes. It's coming from inside the House of Government. And that is why we need to be very wary and very concerned about people that are putting forward this report that I just mentioned before the public health office saying that uh, not only is climate change a public health emergency, but so too is colonialism, so too is capitalism. Again, this is not some wacky wokadoodle professor that is from some university that's just put this report and is saying, look at me. This is a report commissioned by the Public Health Agency of Canada, citing public health so-called experts in Canada, being put in front of the chief public health officer of Canada, who we know has been the beneficiary of government abdication of decision-making. So we live in an era in which public health officials have been given monumental power 
monumental power to make political decisions. And instead, we are supposed to accept that this is all hunky-dory. This is all fine. This is just the way things are supposed to be. So my big concern here is, I think, fairly self-evident that there are a lot of Canadians and Americans and Brits and Frenchmen and Frenchwomen and Dutchmen and Dutchwomen and people from all over the world that were all too complacent to go along with the COVID measures, these highly, highly restrictive COVID measures. And the reason was because they were brought into this line of thinking that it was an emergency, so they had to. Mark Morano has been warning about this since long before if anyone else was noticing, and I think it's a, a great shame that no one in decision-making roles in Canada and around the world listened to him. He is the uh, Grand Puba over at Climate Depot, which is something you must read, and also author of the book, The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown. Mark, it is good to talk to you again, as always. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. Very happy to be here today. Now, I want to just make a point here. You've done a presentation on this that I, I've seen before, and I, I have one of your slides uh, from John Kerry here that I think is interesting, because this isn't just people like you and I that are drawing this connection. A lot of the people that are in the driver's seat of these policies themselves are putting this connection yes. in place. And uh, what we have John Kerry saying here is that the parallels between COVID and climate are screaming at us both positive and negative. You could just as easily replace the words climate change with COVID-19. He couldn't make your point better with another line. No, he couldn't. I mean, they're saying the quiet part out loud. And this has been going on literally since March of 2020. Immediately when the COVID lockdowns occurred, we had people like Jamie Margolis, who was uh, the teen Vogue climate activist who actually testified in front of Capitol Hill, has given speeches all over the world say, if we can shut down the world for a virus, we can do the same thing for COVID. And this is the era when John Kerry, when all the environmentalists were saying that the cities are so much nicer, there's less pollution, the wildlife is returning. Uh, and the creepiest part of all, uh, or the, the eeriest part was in November of 2019, the United Nations said global emissions needed to drop 7% per year in order to meet the UN Paris climate commitment. And boom, lockdowns happened in 2020. And in December of 2020, the UN reported that, that global emissions had dropped 7% uh, because of the lockdowns. So it was almost as if they called it and it happened. So the parallels here are amazing. You have your doctor in Canada, your, your Fauci, but we have our Fauci here. He has done in two separate peer-reviewed journals, Andrew said, he has merged COVID and climate and he has said, infectious diseases are largely the result of human encroachment on nature aided by climate changes. He had this published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And, you, and your point is very valid when you say it's not some crackpot professor or a Greenpeace blogger we're making hay out of. We had 230 medical journals, the British Medical Journal, all say that the way to tackle climate change, we need to follow the template that we used for COVID. And we all know what that template was, authoritarian uh, public health bureaucracy. I mentioned earlier on that, you know, that there's a, a tremendous hypocrisy in a lot of people on this. And, and we saw, I think it was, again, going back to March, April, uh, some people celebrating how great it was for the climate, that no cars were on the street, that yeah. businesses were shut down. And I, and there, there is something quite cynical in, it, in, in that. When I mentioned earlier, I don't know if you were on at the time, about how uh, what these people want is to completely eradicate industrialization. Uh, it, it is 
actually quite transparent. I mean, one example of this is uh, how net zero used to be, and in some circles, all the rage. We have to take enough carbon out to meet what we're putting in. But then you get people saying, no, net zero is not enough. We need absolute zero. We need absolutely no emissions <laughs> yeah. whatsoever. And, and these people do want us to live in the Stone Age, but only us, not them. Yeah, in fact, I, in my, I'm doing a special report on this speech that I sent you. I gave it to the Heartland Climate Summit. I gave this speech. But there, in the COVID world, you have co zero COVID. And this was practiced by the New Zealand prime minister, by China. And the idea is you can't allow a single case. Well, in the climate world, you have zero, net, you have zero, uh, zero uh, CO2. And they're actually pushing for this, where we're going to have uh, no emissions from human activity. Both of them are anti-human. Both of them will result in tyranny. But it's another example of how these two groups of people think and the way to simplify this Andrew is in in the in the, the throughout history the greatest abuses of human rights have occurred when governments have invoked emergency powers whether mm -hmm. they're wartime powers or you know, terrorism powers or in the case of covid emergency well what do they want us to do they in the united states joe biden's being urged to declare a national climate emergency give him 132 new existing powers their template, and this is the reason Jane Fonda said COVID was God's gift to the left. She's a progressive activist. And she said that because it gave them everything they wanted by bypassing democracy. And this is what we're looking at. This is why the New York Times and Obama administration officials, Justin Trudeau has praised China's one party rule because they can just get things done, an enlightened group of people. I admire their basic dictatorship. These are what all the different fi figures have said. Well, COVID lockdowns gave them the once free West literally to, to emulate one party rule China. And that's why Jane Fonda said it was the gift to the left. So what they want to do on climate is if they can get it in the realm of public health, and they are, Harvard School of Public Health has now said unchecked climate change will lead to more COVID-like viruses. So if you don't support the Green New Deal, the UN Paris Accord, you're a grandma killer. So you have public health now using that authoritarian power that they drunk, drunk from during COVID, they want to apply it to climate. And that's really what's happening in real time throughout the world, particularly with the WHO pandemic treaty, which here in the United States, the Biden administration is pushing us to get into. We, one thing that we've seen now in 2023 with a lot of COVID stuff is, is a lot of historic revisionism from people that went along with the fear yes. and panic and now kind of wish they hadn't and, and pretend they hadn't. And I mean, this is obviously a big thing in the uh, run up to the U.S. Uh, to the Republican presidential nomination, where you have Ron DeSantis who's saying that, no, he was against lockdowns from the start. And then a lot of these old clips of Donald Trump defend, defending lockdowns have, have yes. been and uh, but I, I'm wondering if you think that people would go along with it again because the, the big thing that I had as a point of frustration was not governments doing what governments want to do, which is trample on rights, but people all too willing to give those rights up. It's a great question. Uh, I think it was Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownson Institute who had the best analysis. He said so many of us, and I include myself in this in March of 2020 just thought this will never hold. The people are going to rise up. Can you imagine we close churches and schools and businesses and politicians stay at home orders, cancel weddings, funerals. We empowered neighbors to ratchet out if you had a backyard mm -hmm. barbecue. We just thought there's no way this is going to last. Yet it lasted. So next time, the second this happens, we have to come out. We have to oppose every measure, including 
social distancing, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and you have to agitate the public. We were too complacent, meaning us opposed to this stuff from the beginning, and we just thought the public will never accept it. Well, guess what they did? So to answer your question, I don't know, I just read an article a week ago that India was having a new outbreak of a new COVID variant, and many of the, of the districts in India were issuing mask mandates again. And I, I don't know if the people were complying, but it's the government's tool to the go-to tool is for authoritarian crackdown anytime there's a threat and that's the whole idea of emergency decree so what this is and the key is we just heard this last week they're going after you know gas stoves they're going after rice now but they're not really trying to ban it all or gas powered cars what they're doing is saying there's an emergency and a crisis we're smarter we're the experts they literally want to take over every aspect of our lives and manage it so that we, the unwashed masses, can't ruin the earth, can't create inequity, can't create environmental destruction, a climate crisis. That's what this is all about. It's about them saying we can't be left to our own devices and they're gonna manage our food production, they're gonna manage our transportation, they're gonna manage our energy, they're gonna manage our money to the point of central bank digital currency where they're gonna, like the Bank of England sent the quiet part out loud, where governments will only allow people to spend on what they deem sensible and the exact quote. So this is what we're facing. It's they're using these scares, COVID, climate, terrorism, uh, war, uh, as an excuse to literally manage every aspect of our life in the climate. And that's that's where they're going. And people, especially younger people, they're cheering it on. You know, we have kids suing the government to go full Marxist in order to stop a climate emergency and ensure their climate future. Lawsuits in Europe, in the United States, Canada, of kids as young as elementary school. So mm-hmm. I'm not that optimistic that we have this great liberty streak in, in all, in, uh, throughout the world. I think it's been severely dampened and we have to ignite it. We can't wait for it to self-ignite. Well, you're right. And, and these activists are, are not dumb. And I think you dismiss them at your own peril because yes. they, they're, they're very shrewd. They know they have a captive audience. I mean, the fact that Greta Thunberg, you know, a, a teenager from Sweden who's famous for skipping school, was getting an yeah. audience with, you know, now the king of England, the prime minister, the president of whatever country is, is laughable. But they're, they're the ones laughing at us. But they also know how to move the goalposts very adequately. I mean, one big example of this is, you know, Paris uh, Climate Accord in 2015, which was at the time seen as this monumental, uh, huge thing for uh, solving climate change. They, countries agreed to keep uh, global warming, uh, you know, with an asterisk to two degrees above pre-industrial levels. And then you you fast forward, the countries agree to that. You fast forward to uh, the Sharm El shakedown uh, that you were at uh, a little while ago that we had you on the show about. And all of a sudden it's two degrees is, is nothing. We got to get to 1.5. Yeah. And and you know, the second anyone agrees to that, it's going to go down to one degree. Like it's just, they, they know that this. So there's yeah. no such thing as victory because they just are using this all as stepping stones. Yeah. In fact, I did a report 2015, right when they signed the Paris Accord of all the like our grandchildren will thank us. This was world leader after world leader, including John Kerry, the French president, <laughs> UK prime minister, president. And now Obama. it's like, oh, that was a crap deal. That was nothing. That- yes. And Literally within six months after praising this historic thing that our grandchildren remember, John Kerry had his granddaughter on his lap when he signed for the United States. It was this historic. They literally came out and announced that it wasn't enough. It was woefully inadequate. And guess what? The world needs saving all over again. So we heard all the tipping points. Same thing just happened yesterday in the United States here, Andrew. 
We had the Inflation Reduction Act last mm -hmm. summer, unfortunately, because one U.S. Democrat Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia caved because Bill Gates got involved and he got promised all sorts of sweetheart deals for his district and for his state. That was hailed as a planet-saving measure that was essentially a, the Green New Deal by another name. And now they've reintroduced the Green New Deal by saying that the Inflation Reduction Act wasn't enough. So there, it's never going to be enough. There's no criteria by which they'll ever say we've solved the climate crisis. And it goes back to the whole founding of the UN Climate Panel, 1988. They are formed to say, are, we're going to look at whether CO2 causes the climate crisis. If it does, we get to be in charge of, of doing the science. In fact, the UN's own words were, we own the science and we'll make sure the world knows it by partnering with Google. But the UN also gets to be in charge of the solution. They get to hype the problem and the solution through these international treaties. Well, what happens? This is a self-serving lobbying organization. In other words, if they fail to find carbon dioxide is creating a climate catastrophe, they fail to exist as a climate panel. So they're never going to find Find it. And, that, and the fact that they do the solutions is the same thing. I mean, you have the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, is the former president of Socialist International. That is never mentioned in media outlets. This is a guy who goes out there and talks about how we have to overthrow capitalism and make this all happen or else the planet will die. And the media reports it as though he's a scientist. This is just... It's nuts. And, and most Americans, most Canadians aren't aware of these basic facts. They think these are experts and we're being warned of a climate crisis and, and we need to act. Well, listen to Mark Morano's warnings. That's the best <laughs> advice I can give to everyone. The warnings about them, not the warnings of the uh, impending uh, catastrophe that uh, Jane Fonda and Leo DiCaprio want you to head for the hills over. Uh, he's the author of The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown. And you can check out his stuff at Climate Depot. Mark, always good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot. And just because we were talking about John Kerry, I have to share this little clip again. This was from January when I decided I would ask John Kerry about uh, the big China-sized elephant in the room on climate. And to give a little bit of context here, uh, here's a guy who takes the private jets all around the world to tell everyone that we shouldn't board planes because it's bad for the climate. And then he uh, shakes hands with uh, Chinese leaders. He shakes hands with the Venezuelan dictator uh, Maduro. He shakes hands with all these people because he says they're partners in climate. Well, uh, China is the great victor of our reduction of emissions because China just adds more coal, adds more production, adds more industrialization, uh, makes huge money while we're all trying to figure out uh, how to get our battery working in minus 30 weather. So I asked or tried to ask John Kerry about the China issue. Take a look. Why should anyone else in the world have to deal with emissions reductions when China is not? You, you can't speak about China's impact, sir? Why, why should we have to deal with carbon prices when China is not lowering its emissions? Absolutely. You're between me and him. It's okay. I don't know if I can call that... I, I don't know if I can call that an interview, per se, because, you know, he didn't actually say anything. I did get uh, lovely footage of the two uh, bodyguards, one of which uh, tried to like go and uh, smack poor Sean uh, with the camera there with her, with her iPad. And then the other guy that uh, was telling me I had to keep my distance when he was between me and John Kerry. So it's like I was already keeping enough distance. And uh, that was that. And uh, later I saw John Kerry palling around with the uh, chef, uh, Jose Andres. Uh, Sean says, precious memories. Uh, so yeah, we have to go back to Davos again and, and ask him a question. Maybe we can get the John Kerry private jet next time. Uh, Instead of having a slummit on uh, Air Canada with uh, Christian Freeland up in business class and Mark Carney and uh, the president of BMO was up there and uh, the guy from the Great Big C 
Alan Doyle, I think his name is. I don't know how Alan Doyle of Great Big Sea counts as a global elite that is flying in business class on the way back from Davos. That is like a tremendous injustice. So yeah, I like Great Big Sea, but if he can be a global elite in Davos, there's no reason that all of us uh, can't be. Uh, but nevertheless, that was my attempt at an interview with John Kerry. I didn't get in on the Greta Thunberg uh, scrum that was taking place because uh, there was one point where I, who was, I was interviewing someone really boring, actually, or trying to interview someone. And then across the street, I see this like amorphous blob of people that are all just descending down the street. I'm like, who the heck is that? And normally when you see the reporters, you can kind of see like, you know, the top of the head of the person they're all following around. And in this case, I couldn't. So I, I get up there and realize that they're all uh, trying to interview Greta Thunberg, who has made her way to Davos to tell everyone to use uh, less in the way of emissions and whatever. And, and you know, I, I actually don't get in on the whole uh, anti-Greta Thunberg train, uh, the battery-powered train, uh, because I think she actually has her heart in the right place, and I think she practices what she preaches, and, uh, you know, she has been very reluctant to fly, for example. I think she took a boat to America once and generally doesn't do much travel. I, I, I don't look at her with any ill will. I look at all the people around her that have tried to prop her up and make her this uh, poster child, and it doesn't escape me that she is a what is she now 20 or 21 and still looks like a teenager which is why they're just i mean she's like the gary coleman of climate she just looks like a child so they're going to just keep trotting her out until she's like a 50 year old woman that's still running the same shtick and you're like wasn't she like skipping school for the last uh, 45 years and and you just sort of shrug your shoulders and move on so uh nevertheless that is it for the climate stuff i i do want to talk very briefly about the great pearson airport heist now, this is pretty significant. And I was talking about this with Rachel Emanuel on The Daily Brief today, which is a podcast you should subscribe to if you are not already. And I was like, there's a part of me that just because I like heist movies and heist shows, there's like a part of me that's like kind of rooting for the thieves, especially because it wasn't an armed robbery. It wasn't violent. No one got hurt in it. And then I'm like, no, no, no. Theft is still theft. And this is $20 million worth of stuff that was taken, apparently owned by TD or destined for TD. And I'm a TD customer. So now I'm just like wondering how much my uh, monthly bank fees are going to go up just because they have to like offset the loss of the uh, gold and all that jazz. But uh, what was <laughs> Sean, Sean's also a uh, TD customer I'm hearing. So yeah, Sean, you're going to have to chip in on the uh, heist recuperation fee, which is going to be on your uh, next statement if you're a, a TD customer, the heist, uh, heist recuperation fee. Uh, but nevertheless, They've made no arrest. They don't even know if the items are in the country. They don't know who is behind it. There are no witnesses. They haven't alluded to any camera footage. So this is going to be like the Barry and Honey Sherman murders, where like every year police will have a press conference in which they will announce that uh, something has uh, happened, that maybe they're re re reinvigorating the search, but they're never going to get there. And as you know, and as we talked about with Michael Bonner last week, I am a little bit of a history buff. And I would be remiss to not point out the 1952 gold heist from Moulton Airport, which was the precursor to Pearson Airport, a heist that was never sold. So I, like I said, my theory, and if I were to write the screenplay of the Pearson heist, I would actually write it as though the, the guy behind the heist 
was the guy who was behind the 1952 heist, and he wanted his final hurrah before he ends up just packing it up and retiring. And he never sold, he never spent, he never did anything like that. Uh, he wanted his uh, final hurrah. That would be how I'd script this. So if you are out there a budding screenwriter and you want to partner up on this, uh, that's what we'll do. It. We, we have to come up with a name for it, uh, Pearson Airport. Uh, is a, not a pun-worthy airport, so I don't know what we uh, come up with there. Maybe we just call it like waiting in the security line for too long, and you just come up with the idea on, hey, I bet I could steal that $20 million in the time it would take me to get through security at Pearson Airport, and boom, what do you know it? You have all of that uh, gold bullion that may or may not still be in the country. So uh, let me know in the comments, do they solve it or do they not solve it? in the next year. It is April 21st, 2023. We will like set a little reminder and revisit this in a year. I say in a year, they have come nowhere close to solving it and we have forgotten all about it. And then the Netflix special will probably come out uh, around this time in 2025. That's my prediction. So uh, thank you to all of you who tuned in to today's show. I just want to give a bit of a plug because uh, this is often, I mean, we produce this as a video show because uh, someone looked at me once and said, wow, we need to put a camera in front of that for, for reasons. But we also do it in podcasts. So sometimes I'll like reference this, you know, great visual and the people on the podcast can't hear it. But we do love the podcast audience. My background is in radio. So I have such a, a tremendous affinity for the medium. Uh, if you are not a subscriber to the podcast, please, please, please do subscribe. And the reason I bring this up is with what happened to Matt Walsh in the U.S., who's with The Daily Wire. Uh, his show on YouTube got demonetized. Uh, my friend Mark Stein posted a clip on YouTube from his show interviewing a woman whose husband died. Or sorry, no, it was a different woman. A woman who whose life was ruined because she had a vaccine injury. And this is something that uh, she spoke about. It's been uh, recognized and certified by doctors. Uh, she spoke about it in an interview, and then that clip got taken off YouTube because it violated their... Uh, misinformation policy. So uh, we recommend subscribing to us on as many platforms as you can so that if we get vaporized from one, you can pick us up on the other. But we will never stop speaking the truth. And we thank so much those of you who support our mission and our mandate uh, by tuning in and also by financially supporting, which you can do at donate.tnc.news. So uh, with that plug, wait, who's someone's calling us out. Someone is saying we're not really live. Can I like hold up the comment and say we're... <laughs> <laughs> Someone, there's like a, there's an Andrew Lawton show live truther out there in the live chat that is saying we're not actually live. And the reason he thinks that is because I, I don't interact with what's happening in the chat. Well, uh, the reason why is because uh, we do the show and we have generally a sense of what we're going to talk about and i don't actually see the comments so if something really good comes up like this one uh someone who works on the show will flag it for me uh but now i'm gonna like have to start holding up today's new wait hang on i can hold up the uh the time okay friday the 21st at 12 35 i mean i guess i could have changed the time zone on you so well, that doesn't give a sense. This, I'm actually CGI'd. I'm not even here. I uh, I died uh, three weeks ago, and I've now just been uh, prop propped up animatronically ever since. So uh, <laughs> no shows are live ever again. I'm doing like the thing they did at the ABBA show in London where they just have them touring as holograms. Anyway, uh, <laughs> with that, they, con they conceded. All right, this is how you win the debate, everyone. <laughs> All right. Uh, everyone else is like, what the heck is going on? So uh, yeah, this is the great work that you get when you support independent media. So, uh, oh, do we even put it on the screen? I didn't know we could, okay. I didn't know we could do that. 
Clone42 says, all right, Andrew, you rock. Well, you rock back at you, Clone42. I don't know if you're the 42nd clone or if that's just your uh, nickname, but uh, we welcome you nonetheless. Uh, That does it for us for today. Hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.